6. I'm from verses 9 to 20, end of the chapter. Hebrews 6, 9 to 20. Thus says the word of God. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though with us speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This far the reading of God's infallible word. This chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. But before we begin, let's come before the Lord once again and ask for his blessing. O Lord, our almighty God, we come before thee, Lord, praying that the light of thy only begotten Son would shine in our midst, in the midst of thy church, Lord. And O Lord, strengthen us to be faithful and strong and mature Christians for thy kingdom and for thy glory. So, O oh Lord, thou hast promised that thy word wouldn't return void, Lord. So bring, Lord, us closer to thee. Bring us, us unto repentance, Lord, and unto maturity, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, by thy Holy Spirit. Draw us nearer to thee, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last section that we saw in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, was a strong warning section. The authors told us uh, about the danger of apostasy, how apostasy is a danger within the church, and he warned us of the danger of falling away. Well, this time, the author is giving an encouragement to motivate us to live diligent, diligently in our Christian walk. The contrast between these two sections is great. 
On the one hand, we have a strong warning section, and now in this section, an encouragement to assurance. Both of them are important to bring us to maturity in our Christian walk. As we walk through this life, we face both good and bad moments, moments of trials, just like the original readers of the letter to the Hebrews were facing, and moments of joy. And for this reason, it is important to have both things before us all the time, both the warnings and the encouragements that the Bible brings to us. And in this section, we have an encouragement to assurance. And to meditate on this, we'll divide our text into three points. First, be encouraged by your progress, verses 9 to 12. Second, be encouraged by who God is, verses 13 to 18. And third, be encouraged by the Son, verses 19 and 20. So first, let's consider be encouraged by your progress. Although the last section was a strong warning, the author is encouraged by how these Christian believers were living. He knows he's speaking to the church of God. He knows that despite of the danger of apostasy, he knows he's speaking to their beloved, as he calls them, Christians. Verse 9, But beloved... We are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. It's interesting that the author first acknowledged the danger of apostasy. Now he's acknowledging how these believers were living a good life, a godly life in some respects. He's treating them as dear, beloved Christians in the body of Christ. It is true that we need to be harsh with sin. We need to be very serious with sin. But we need to be cheerful and recognize the good that the Lord has done in our lives as well. We need to celebrate the good that the life that, that God has brought into our lives. Sometimes we feel that it could be prideful to recognize how the Lord has been working in our lives, has been bringing us to maturity and we are growing in sanctification before Him. We feel like, oh, that would be too prideful to say anything like that, to assume that I am even maturing before God. We are allowed to rejoice over the progress that we have in our Christian walk, both the big and the small progress that we have in our victories over sin, for example, that the Lord is working in our lives, and we are allowed to be rejoicing Christians who celebrate all these victories that the Lord brings. And what was encouraging to the writer that he saw in these dear believers? Three things in verse 10. First, their work. God is not unrighteous to forget your work. Well, you have worked in God's kingdom. You have been laborers. You are not simply sitting in the church in the pews and doing nothing. No, you are working for the kingdom of God. And the writer here is encouraged to see that. To see that these were lively Christians who were working for the kingdom. That's an encouragement. Second, their affection. The labor of love which ye have showed toward his name. There is a genuine love for God in them. These beloved Christians, they love God. 
They love Jesus Christ. They profess their love, and they do live according to that love for Christ. That's a good test for our faith as well. Do we love Christ? Can we say that we recognize this mark in our own lives, that we love Christ and everything that has to do with Him? And the third thing is their ministry to the saints. Ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. They didn't take for granted that they were part of the body of Christ, but they helped one another. They lived as one body of Christ, united, and they labored, helping each other to mature, to walk this and to run this race together, sharpening one another, picking up those who fall and helping one another. They live a life of community together. Well, one way to find encouragement and assurance of salvation is to look for these fruits in our life. To look for the same things that encourage the writer that he saw in the life of these believers. To look for these marks in our lives. These are the marks of a true Christian who lives a life for God. Who works, who loves God, who loves Christ. And who loves his body, who loves the body of Christ as well. These fruits ought to be an encouragement for us. Seeing that we have these marks in our life ought to encourage us because these are the marks that accompany salvation. These are the marks of a true believer, as verse 9 says. But they are also a challenge. They are also a challenge for us. That if you don't have them, you should pursue them. If you don't have these marks, you should strive to have them. And even if you do, to some measure, you should strive to have more, to have an abundance. You see, all these three marks are present in Christ. Christ is the one who fulfills all these three marks. He has all of them in abundance. He has worked the perfect work for God's kingdom. He has displayed the greatest love in fulfilling the law, in coming lowly, in bringing us to His kingdom. And He has ministered to the body of Christ, to His own body. So He's the fulfillment of all these things. And as we do this, we are slowly being conformed to His image. We are being made, made more conformed to the image of Christ, more like Christ. So at the same time that the writer is encouraged by their progress, he wants them to grow even more. Verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So this is what the writer desires that we should do. First, be diligent. Show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Being diligent means that we are constant. Yeah, we are diligently working and running this race faithfully, pursuing a godly life before God, forsaking sin and seeking Christ more and more diligently. Sanctification is a progress, and we should be diligent in our walk. Michael Kruger, Dr. Michael Kruger, said this, that a problem with our culture is that they take sports more serious, seriously 
than they do with our walk with Christ. Our problem is not that we cannot take anything serious. It's that we are taking the wrong thing serious. That we take other things more serious than what we do with our own Christian walk. With the most important thing. We cannot flip this around. We should seek first the kingdom of God. First and foremost to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this doesn't mean that we are grumpy Christians. Having a sad face all the time. No. In fact, it is quite the opposite. It should mean that we are joyful. We are joyful all the time, even through affliction. But we are more joyful about our salvation in Jesus Christ than we are about sports team or anything else. Greatest joy is to know that we belong to Christ, that I am not of my own, but belong to Christ Jesus, and my victory is being in Him. So that is our assurance. Because only Jesus can give us the full assurance of hope unto the end. So that we can persevere unto the end in Him. Second thing that He wants from us is to be productive. Or as the text says in verse 12, Be not slothful. Be productive. It's not about works of salvation. It's not about working out your salvation but about exercising or putting into practice what we believe. Well, we believe these things. Well, now live according to them. Now live a godly life in accordance to what you have professed. We saw in the last section that those who are spiritually lazy are in danger of falling away. So you don't want to fall away? Well, so live a godly life. Work for the kingdom of God Live in accordance to what you believe. And the third thing that he requires from us is be patient. Second half of verse 12. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and be patient. The promises will be fulfilled. As we heard this morning, you will inherit these promises, dear believer. But it's not here and now. You've got to be persevering. Do you know what's the difference between running a 300-feet race and running a marathon? It's approximately 26 miles. Well, running a marathon takes endurance, perseverance from you. At the end of a short distance running, you only cheer if you go to the podium. The only people who will be cheerful are the, the three first. All the others will not. But it's not the same in a marathon. At the end of a marathon, everyone who finishes is cheering. Because it's not about finishing the race first, but it's about enduring till the end. That's like our Christian Life. It's about enduring till the end. The Christian walk tests our endurance and our perseverance until the end. It's not easy. It's not an easy task. But it's endurance, persevering, running the race, fighting the good fight. It's going to take everything from us. 
So endure, dear Christian. Be patient. It's not here and now. It's not always like we want things to be. But endure. Be patient. It will be fulfilled in the end. These three practices are the opposite of spiritual laziness. Doing these things are the very opposite of being spiritual lazy. To being, to work, to be diligent, to be productive, to be patient. Spiritual laziness might keep you away from this promise, from inheriting these promises. But to do these things, to grow up and to be mature Christians who do these things will keep you in the track, will keep you in the race. So those who are spiritually lazy will not inherit in the kingdom. And in the opposite side, those who are spiritually persevering will. Those who are diligent, productive, patient will one day rest in God's kingdom after we cross the finish line. We'll finally enjoy and rest in God's kingdom. But the second encouragement to assurance comes not from our progress, but by seeing who God is. Be encouraged by who God is. It's hard to trust promises, because human promises are so flawed. All the human promises that we know are so flawed. For example, one of the sacred vows that we take, the vow of a marriage, so often broken. 41% of first marriages end in divorce. So the human promises that we know are so flawed. And because of that, we have a hard time believing in God's promises because we think that God's promises is like our promises. But that's not the case. Abraham was in the same place that we are. That's why the altar draws our attention to Abraham here, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. The author is quoting from Genesis 22. If the kids remember Genesis 22, that's when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. God asked Abraham to bring his son and sacrifice him. After so long, waiting for this son, waiting for Isaac to be born. Now Abraham was asking, God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And surprisingly, Abraham Abraham rose up, had a knife and fire in his hand. And with his son, he went to that mountain. And on the very last minute, what happened? God stopped him. God stopped him. And spared the life of his son. He provided another sacrifice in the place of Isaac. He provided a way out and preserved the life of Isaac. The foundation of this section is this story. The the struggle that went in Abraham's heart and mind. Abraham, Abraham had the promise of one day. His seed would fill the earth. Would be a blessing to the nations. But right here and right now, God was testing him. Testing to take his only child, the child of the promise, Isaac. So is God going to keep his promise or not? Can you imagine after so long waiting for this day for Isaac to be born, and now God asks for this child, what is happening? 
Abraham could ask, are you going to keep your promises or not? How is my seed going to fill the earth if you're going to take my only child? Many Christians feel this this tension, this challenge in their lives. Many of us have been through that in different moments in our lives. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, Romans 8, 28. And yet it is so hard. Yet it is so hard to see at some times. Dark times, times of trial and tribulation that comes upon us. It's so hard to see this promise being a reality. It's hard to make sense of that when we are struggling Struggling with unconverted family members, for example. It's hard to make sense of that when, we, when you lost your job. It's hard to make sense of that in face of cancer or in face of losing a dear one. It's hard to make sense of these promises that we hold so dearly when we are going through these trials. The question that comes to our mind is, Will God really keep his promises? Is God really good? Is he really a good God? Or even, am I really good? Maybe that's why this is happening in my life. I'm not good. That's why God is not helping me. How could he love me? These are some of the doubts that come to us. And they instigate us to leave the track to leave the race, to fall away, to abandon the fight. And sadly, when trials come, many do leave the faith. And to prevent that as an antidote that is being given to us, to prevent this, the author gives us reasons to trust in God's promises. And the first reason is based on God's oath. I'm not sure if they still do this here, but... At least it was like this in the movies. When someone would come to a court, to a trial, he would put his hand in a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth and not but the truth, so help me God. It's making an oath, an open oath before all, swearing, promising. You're promising that you are saying can be trusted. And you are appealing to a higher authority to the authority of God to help you to keep this promise. Well, in this case, God is the one making an oath. But what would God appeal to? It's nothing higher than God. He is the highest authority. There's no authority higher than himself. Nothing he could appeal, so he swears by himself. And when God promises you can be assured that he will keep his promises. He will keep his word till the end. You could think, well, it's good that God promised this to Abraham. It's good that Abraham had this promise. It was good for him. But what does, he do? what does it have to do with us today? You see, God's promise to Abraham was about us. God's promise to Abraham was about you and me, outsiders from strange nations, that we would be brought in. We would be blessed. 
by this very promise. We are the seed of Abraham that is multiplied to bless all the world. And the Lord will preserve His church, His people, until the end. That's the promise of verse 14. God not only tell, always tells the truth, but He makes a promise so that we can be absolutely sure that this will happen, that this is true. In other words, God is making an oath, not because He could otherwise lie, but because He knows we are a doubting people. He knows our heart. He knows our struggle. So He's making an oath, not because He would lie, but because He knows we need these promises. We need them. We need them to run this race, to endure, to persevere. God knows our struggles. God's so gracious that He gives us a promise, an official oath on His part, so that we can be completely assured of what He says. Isn't it wonderful that God not only commands us to fear not, fear not over and over, but He also over and over gives us promises to know that indeed we don't need to fear. We have good reasons to trust Him. Notice how, how verse 15 is the fulfillment of verse 12. That is, Abraham waited patiently, and he obtained the promise, verse 15. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham knew God's promises are unbreakable. And because of that, he had patience. Yes, Lord, I don't know when and I don't know how, but I know your word will be fulfilled. That was in Abraham's heart. One of the problems that lead us to doubt God is that we think he's not doing the things at the right time. We think that God's time is not right. You see, I need it now, Lord. I need to see it now. I need to see these things coming into fulfillment now. His promises are not fast enough. I know that one day he will wipe out every tear, that he will bring an end to sorrow, to death. But I, Lord, I need it now. His time is perfect. He will bring all these things to fulfillment. And we should endure, be patient. Abraham, he received the promise of having his seed multiplied, but he had to wait patiently for many, many years until he saw Isaac. And not only he had to wait until Isaac was born, but centuries after that, until finally the gospel reached all the nations outside of Israel and came to us. See, God's promises are fulfilled in the right time. We don't like waiting. But because we know who God is and what he has done, it should motivate us to patiently endure like Abraham. Abraham knew that God was going to fulfill his promises. Even if God had to raise Isaac back from the dead, he would fulfill his promises. And you can be sure of that today. But the second reason to trust God's promises is because of who he is. We can trust his oath because of his character, because of who he is. If God could, be, could break his word, he would be a liar. And he would be no longer be God. 
God's word and his oath are both unchangeable. He cannot lie. So whatsoever he says is true. But for the sake of us, because of us, he gave oaths. Verse 18, that by two immutable things, that God is true, and he gave an oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. God is unchangeable. He doesn't change. And that is good news for us, because we can know that we can come to his presence today, and when we come tomorrow, he will not treat us different. See, if he tells us today, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If we come tomorrow, he will not change. If he showed his grace to us today, he will not change tomorrow. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he is. And he doesn't change. What you think about God will impact your relationship with him. What you know of God, about who he is, will impact how you relate to him and how much you trust him. I mentioned that many of us go through seasons in life and our faith is tested. Well, in these times of trials, the answer for our affliction is not to look to what we have done or what we could do, but to look to the character of God, to who He is, to who He is and what He has promised, to look to the sureness of His promises, to how sure they are and how they will be fulfilled. This is one of those things that are easier said than done. It's easy to say and to profess that we know that God is good. And that God never changes. But when we are going through these trials, our faith is tested. One of my daughter's books is called The Moon is Always Round by Jonathan Gibson. I will not spoil the book, but the story is rather simple. Even when you cannot see, the moon is always round. There are days that the moon looks like a full orange in the sky. There are other days that the moon looks like a, a banana. You cannot see the whole thing. And there are other days that you simply cannot see the moon whatsoever. But the moon is always round. And the application of that is very simple. God is always good. Even when you can see. Even when you cannot see the full picture. Even in, when everything looks dark and gloomy, God is always good. Psalm 100 verse 5, For the Lord is good. That's who He is. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endures to all generations. We don't know all the whys of God's plan. We don't know why these things happen in our lives. The persecuted Christians at the time of this letter to the Hebrews didn't know why they had to lost 
everything, why they had to lose their houses, why they had to lose their family, why they had to leave their country. But they knew that God is always good. That's the promise that we have. That's the dear promise that we have, that even when we cannot make sense of what is happening, we know that God is always good. If you want to walk the Christian faith and trust in God, you need to know Him, to know His character, to know who He is, to know His promises, and to hold them, especially for when we we walk the valley of shadow of death, especially for when we walk these dark valleys in our lives. To know who God is is the only thing that can help us, that can cheer us up, that can encourage us. But there is a third encouragement, the greatest encouragement of all. Be encouraged by the Son. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus Christ is presented as the anchor of the soul within, within the veil. Another title for Christ here, the anchor of the soul within the veil. So the first question is, what does an anchor do? What is the function of an anchor? Well, it prevents the ship from drifting away into the ocean. It guards you from being dragged by the ocean currents and being crushed by the waves. The anchor assures that you will remain steady. Even in a stormy sea, you will remain steady and secure. The question then is, where is our anchor? Where is our anchor? What veil, what curtain is this that the text is speaking? This refers to the curtain in the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies to the rest of the temple, a thick curtain. It's not like the curtains that we have today in our windows. No, it was a very thick curtain, approximately four inches thick. It was like a a gate of separation between the most holy God and the people outside the rest of Israel, that no one could come into His presence. And this gate was there to veil, to separate His presence from His people. No one could peek through this curtain. No one could cross this curtain. So that was the veil that separated. But how to have access to this God then? How could we sinful people cross this curtain and enter into His presence? Animal sacrifices didn't really work, did it? Over and over, animal sacrifices were brought, but the curtain was never removed. Those animal sacrifices were never enough to really remove the curtain and bring us into the presence of God. So what then? Well, Jesus goes through the curtain as high priest, verse 20, and offers the most excellent sacrifice of all. And what happened as he does that? Matthew 27, verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. 
See, now we have access to the most holy God. Now, not only the high priest once a year enters the presence of the most holy God. Now, all of us have access to the throne room of God. The curtain was removed. That's where he entered as the high priest through the veil. And as he's anchored there, as he is our anchor in that place, we have access to the most holy place. We have access to the holy God. It's the only way we can have access to him without being consumed by his glory and holiness. Christ is an anchor in heaven, preventing us from drifting away from where we are supposed to go. Jesus is the forerunner. He's the one going ahead. He's the one leading the way. And we are the ones following. He enters into the presence of God so that we can enter into the presence of God. The fact that Jesus entered heaven and is seated before the right hand of God is the guarantee that we have that we will also go there. Do you want to know why we can trust God? It's because He sent His only begotten Son to die in the cross in order to keep His promise. See, in order for His promise to be fulfilled, He had to send His only Son to die for us. This is how serious He is with His promises. He will not break even a single one of his promises. And you could be sure of that because he didn't spare his only son to do so. The assurance that we have is not because of our works, but it is Jesus. He is our assurance. He is our anchor within the veil. The fact that Jesus is an anchor for us implies that the waters will not always be calm. Implies that we are navigating in stormy waters and we do need an anchor, otherwise we'll drift away. There is no chance we can stand by ourselves without this anchor. So imagine a ship navigating through raging waters. The anchor is what prevents us the anchor, our hope in Christ, is securely holding the ship in place in the midst of chaos. Doesn't matter the raging of the sea if we are firm by this anchor. Just as the anchor provides stability, the believer's hope in Christ remains firm, grounded in the assurance of his work and intercession, even in the storms of life. There will be storms. Be warned, Christian. In our Christian walk, there will be storms. But you have an anchor that holds you fast, steady, through all the raging sea. What I hope we have, that what Jesus Christ has conquered is also ours. Even if we don't see it happening now, even if it doesn't appear to be the case, it will one day be fulfilled. So endure. Endure, dear brother and sister. 
For one day we will go where Christ, our anchor, has entered. We will be with Him and we will rest and rejoice forevermore with Him. This is how firm of a promise we have in Christ Jesus. That is the firm promise that we have. And in light of that, I want to bring three final applications for us. The first is, once again, to be reminded, be patient. God's promises are trustworthy. And He is with you through every trial and storm. But that doesn't mean that we will that things will happen when you want or how you want. Patience is both an evidence that you are united with Him, but it's also something that grows more as you trust in God. It's an evidence that you do trust in God, so you are patient, but it's something that grows more and more as you trust in God at the same time. To apply this concept of being anchored in Christ to your life. To be patient. To wait patiently. And trust that His promises are true. Even when you cannot see. Even when it is hard. You can apply this to every one of God's promises. So many of His promises in the Bible. And you can apply this to every one of them. To motivate us. To hold fast and to be patient. Search the Bible for them. Know who these promises and search for them and cherish them. Second, look to Christ. Look up to Christ. Through Christ, you have access to the presence of God. A direct relationship with God through the work of Christ. The curtain that was a separation from us from God is no longer there. Now we have access to Him. Look up to Him and know that you have access into His throne room. Remember that when you pray, that you can pray directly to Him and speak with God. Come into His presence and pour your heart before His merciful throne. You don't enter the throne room alone. But Christ, as the high priest, is there interceding on your behalf. Furthermore, notice the assurance that is given to us is not our works. It's not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. So it's a sure promise. That's why we can enter with boldness in the veil, within the veil to the presence of God should motivate us to be rejoicing Christians that we have access to God. We can pray to Him and He hear us. What a promise this is by itself. And third, not only look to Christ, but look forward to Christ. Long to be with Him. Long to be in His presence. Remember where the final goal is. The final goal is not in this world. The final goal is not here. It's not here and now. It's not on this earth. But it is with Him. It's to be with Him forever and ever. In His presence, with Him. 
We hope to be with Christ, and we are assured by Christ that we will. That all those who are connected to him as one body, all those who believe in him, will no wise be cast out, and will one day be glorified, and will enjoy forevermore his presence in heaven. So look forward to that, long to be with him, in heaven, desire more the things of heaven, of the world to come. Pray, oh Lord, may thy kingdom come. That's a reality that we should long more in our lives. In him, we have an unshakable foundation for our faith that frees us from the, free, the, the fear of uncertainty, even from the fear of death that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. We have a high priest that not only has entered through the veil, but also takes us with him in that veil. Look forward to be with him. Look forward more and more to be with him. And soon enough, he'll realize that little by little, the things of this world matter less and less. Even the tribulations and trials appear to be smaller in face of the glory that is to come, in face of the marvelous reality of being one day with Him forevermore. Look forward to be with Christ. Look forward to the day of being united with Him and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Know that you will one day be with Him. And little by little, the things of this world will grow strangely dim for you and me. Amen. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, most holy, holy, and holy God, O Lord, we confess that by ourselves there would be no way to cross the curtain. There was a separation between the sinful people and Thee, Lord. But, O Lord, we hold fast to this promise that we have a high priest within the veil, and now we have access to Thy presence, Lord. And, O oh Lord, we pray, may thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. O oh Lord, we long to be with thee. We long for the day, Lord, that all these promises will be made sight, that we will see, Lord, we will see as we see one another, we will see all these promises being fulfilled in full, and we'll be with thee forevermore. Prepare us, Lord, for heaven. Make us citizens of heaven. Help us to long to be with him. Oh, Lord, and in the meanwhile, help us to be diligent. Help us to work. Help us to run the race. Help us to be patient as we face trials and temptations. Oh, Lord, help us to endure until the end, knowing that we haven't anchor within the veil. 
Lord, we long to be with Jesus. We long for the day that sin will be no more. That separation will be no more. That death will be no more. We long for the day that we will rest from our battles. And we will rejoice with thee, Lord. So, oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come and rescue thy church, Lord. Until then, prepare us. Make us fitting for heaven. Prepare us for that glorious day. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.